Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we go to South America for an amazing high elevation adventure of unsurpassed, inspiring natural beauty. We'll encircle a range that has glaciers and lakes and snow-covered peaks, all in a region inhabited by indigenous pastoralists who raise llamas and alpacas. And we'll see a mountain whose rainbow of colors seems otherworldly. On this trip, we'll focus on the hiking while our gear and food is carried by pack animals and handled by guides so that we can focus on a trail that goes over passes at more than 17,000 feet in elevation, or 5,200 meters. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Ausangate and Rainbow Mountain Trek in the Andes of Peru. Welcome to the show, everyone. Don't forget to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com if you have ideas or suggestions for future episodes. Let's start today's show with our Walking the Walk segment. For those of you that are new to the show, this is the segment where we give a shout out to listeners who were inspired by an episode to actually go hike a trail that we covered on the show. So this is a really fun segment for me to do because It's where I can see the impact the show is having out there. We have two Walking the Walk listeners to report today. The first is David Poirier of Montreal, Canada. David hiked the High Sierra Trail in the Sierra Nevada of California. After hearing episode two, the High Sierra Trail episode, David had reached out to me with some questions about the trail several months ago. And over the summer, he and a friend went and actually hiked the trail, which was quite a trip for them considering that they live in eastern Canada and they came all the way out to California to hike in the Sierra Nevada. So after hiking the trail, David wrote to let me know that he completed the High Sierra Trail in eight and a half days, which if you listen to episode two, you know is a a much more reasonable pace than the pace my friend Tony and I hiked the trail. He said that that pace gave him the opportunity and the time to take in the incredible scenery, swim in the beautiful lakes, spend time on the beach at Moraine Lake, and hang out in Kern Hot Spring, as well as acclimate enough to summit Mount Whitney at the end of the hike, all while carrying a nine-day supply of food. Uh, He said that he absolutely loved the trip, and it was so far the greatest adventure trip of his life. David said his favorite part of the trip was up near the Nine Lakes Basin, which is on the other side of the Kauai Gap. He thought the most impressive feature of the High Sierra Trail is really the quality of the trail itself. It's an engineering feat and requires a lot of maintenance to be in the condition that it's in. And he said as a frequent hiker in the Adirondacks, he's used to uh, trails that are less than ideally uh, designed and maintained. But he did really appreciate the, the reasonable grade, the very clear and easy-to-follow path, and the pretty much soft surface for most of the trail. He thought the most useful items that he brought along were his sun hoodie and trekking poles. He said he was pleasantly shocked by the size of the beach on Moraine Lake. And if you listen to the High Sierra Trail episode, which is episode two, or the High Sierra Canyons Loop episode, episode six, where my son Justin and I did a variant of the High Sierra Trail. You'll hear about Moraine Lake. Moraine Lake was a, is a fantastic spot along the trail. And my son Justin and I camped there on our trip. In any event, David had a fantastic time with his friend hiking the trail. Congratulations to David on his through-hike of the High Sierra Trail. Our other Walking the Walk listener on this episode 
is Ken Schneider and his wife, Monica, who hiked the Rota Vicentina in Portugal, which is from episode 10. Ken is actually a good friend of mine and a former work colleague. And it's an interesting story as to how Ken ended up hiking this trail. Ken and I worked together for many years. And then toward the end of last year, Ken retired and moved to Colombia, to Medellin, Colombia in South America, where his wife Monica is originally from. And my son and his girlfriend were actually traveling in South America a few months ago, and I connected him to Ken and Monica. And they ended up staying with Ken and Monica for a couple days in their place in Medellin. And during that stay, Ken and Monica mentioned that they'd be going to Portugal, and Justin told Ken about my podcast. So Ken and Monica listened to the episode about the Rota Vicentina in Portugal, and they went and did it. They said they had a great trip. They used Vicentina transfers for their suitcases so that they had their luggage sent ahead each day. They wore sandals for the first two stages to cover the beach part of the trip and switched to running shoes for the last two stages. They said the views were beautiful along the hike. And Ken said he was really surprised by how many women were out there on the route, whether solo or in groups. And he said that women outnumbered men two to one or even three to one on the trail, which he was uh, happy to see. In any event, congrats to Ken and Monica for hiking the Rota Vicentina in Portugal. And thanks again to Ken and Monica for hosting my son, Justin, and his girlfriend, Bella, when they were visiting Medellin, Colombia. I hope to make it down there myself eventually, Ken, so uh, keep the spare bedroom ready. All right, so that's it for Walking the Walk. Before we jump into the show, I want to remind you about Outdoor Herbivore. Outdoor Herbivore makes delicious vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals. Outdoor Herbivore gives a 10% discount on backpacking meals to Trails Worth Hiking listeners, which you can get by entering the discount code TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%, to get your discount at Outdoor Herbivore. As I always say, you don't have to be a vegan or a vegetarian to love Outdoor Herbivore backpacking meals. They're made with quality ingredients. They're delicious. They boil in a bag, meaning you can pour boiling water right into the packaging Seal them up, and 10 minutes later, your dinner is ready. In September, my son Justin and I, along with my hiking buddy Tony, went hiking in the Sierra Nevada for a three-day trip, and we ate outdoor herbivore backpacking meals both nights on the trail. So between the three of us, we had several different outdoor herbivore backpacking meals, including the, the lemongrass Thai curry, the blackened quinoa, and the chickpea sesame zeti. So we really enjoyed those meals on our hike, and um, you can too with a 10% discount at OutdoorHerbivore.com with the discount code, again, TWH10P. Outdoor Herbivore ships worldwide. So even if you don't live here in the United States, you can order Outdoor Herbivore backpacking meals. Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right, on the show today is listener Gary Black. Gary has been a listener for quite a while. I think Gary provided the show its first Walking the Walk report when he reached out to me a while back to let me know that he had hiked the Kilo Toa Loop in Ecuador, which was from episode three, after he heard about it on the show. And that was an episode where my son Justin and I talked about our family's hike of the Kilo Toa Loop. In the conversation for today's show, Gary and I will talk briefly about that hike before we jump into the hike for this episode. So I really enjoyed talking to Gary. I think he's a great example of a really positive approach to getting into trekking. He only started trekking a few years ago, as he'll discuss in our conversation, but he's really taken to it and has done some interesting hikes and is making plans for more. So Trekking is not something you have to do your whole life. It's something you can find anytime in life. And once you find it, it can be as rewarding as if you've been doing it for a long time and maybe even more so because it's something so special and so new. 
when I heard that Gary was hiking the Ausangate Trek in Peru, I was interested to hear about it because when you think of Peru and you think of the Andes, we can all say it together. We think of Machu Picchu. But Ausangate is something entirely different. Ausangate is a much higher elevation hike than the treks to Machu Picchu and far less crowded. That said, Rainbow Mountain, which is part of this trek, has become a tourist destination and is no longer uh, a secret. In contrast, the, the broader Ausangate hike that Gary will talk about is relatively untrammeled. I often say this, but it's worth repeating. You don't need to go far off of the main path or away from the main hikes to find a lot of isolation in the mountains. So if the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu sounds like something that's much too crowded for your tastes, Ausangate is a great option. And Gary will talk about how you can even see Rainbow Mountain, which itself is a, a fairly popular tourist attraction in a way that is much less crowded than it might otherwise be. I'm also excited to talk about this hike because I really enjoyed the Kilo Toa trek that my family did in Ecuador, and I'm planning to go to Bolivia uh, in several months. And I'm just in general enamored with the Andes and look forward to more opportunities to hike there. All right, so let's talk about this trek. The Ausangate trek is located in the Cordillera Vilcanota, which is in the local Aymara language, Wilkan Uta means house of the sun. This is, as I mentioned, in the Andes. It's southeast of Cusco in Peru. And this mountain range has 469 glaciers. So still today, a huge number of glaciers in this mountain range. Ausangate Mountain itself is 6,384 meters high, so almost 21,000 feet in elevation. And the mountain is 100 kilometers southeast of Cusco, which is about 60 miles. Ausangate Mountain, which is a prominent feature of the hike, is viewed by the local Quechua-speaking people as an apu, or a mountain deity. So the locals see the mountains themselves as a kind of deity, and Ausangate, being one of the most prominent in Peru, is an important one. The communities around this area are llama and alpaca herding communities. So this is a high-altitude pastoralist society. They trade the wool and other products from their animals with the lower-elevation living agriculturalist. The peoples who live in this area speak Quechua or Aymara. Quechua, in particular, is a language that is spoken in Peru and Ecuador, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. Though the dialects can be very different, and so different, in fact, that they can be mutually unintelligible. There are over 5 million Quechua speakers in Peru. These indigenous peoples have long struggled for better land rights for their pastoral way of living, which at times have come up against the modern way of viewing property in these areas. The Inca, who most of you will have heard about, particularly as it relates to Machu Picchu and Cusco, were a Quechua-speaking people. The Inca had the largest empire in pre-Columbian America. I'm not going to focus on the Inca on this episode because I do expect at some point to cover the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. And I think that would be, that would probably be the best place to focus on the history of the Inca. But I will mention a few things about them since the Inca are the ancestors to many of the people in the area. The Inca, having been disconnected from societies of Europe, Asia, and Africa, had some characteristics that were unique for such a large and successful empire. For example, they didn't have the wheel. They didn't have draft animals. They didn't have iron or steel. They didn't even have writing, though they did have a system of using knotted strings for record keeping and communication called kipu. They also had a pretty sophisticated road network and some pretty amazing architecture. As of the 12th century, they were basically a pastoral tribe but by the 15th century had become an empire. 
though within another century, they were conquered by the Spanish. But again, we'll go into that on a different episode. The pastoralists who live in the Ausangate region today have a concept that they call Aini. And this is really a concept that's about reciprocity and balance. More particularly, it's about an ever-shifting sort of dynamic balance in nature that exists between people, but also between people and the natural world. And as a result of a belief in this concept, there are offerings made called kiintus to the Asangaute mountain. And the offerings are made to ensure protection of the people by the mountain. The primary offering that's made is the coca leaf. The coca leaf is said to be the mountain's favorite food. And the way this works is three perfect leaves are infused with the breath of spiritual elders. The elders are called misayaks, and they are offered to the mountain. And yes, coca leaves are the plant that is processed to make cocaine. The leaves themselves, when chewed, can alleviate altitude sickness, as well as hunger, thirst, fatigue, and even pain. So the coca leaf has been an important part of their culture for quite a long time. One important event that happens annually in this region is the Koyuri'i, which is a festival held annually in June in the Sinakara Valley, just north of the Ausangate Navarro, or the Ausangate Range. The name of the festival in Quechua means bright white snow. Basically, this festival is a harvest festival that is marked by the celebration of the reappearance of the Pleiades constellation in the Southern Hemisphere sky. So in a way, it's a Southern Hemisphere New Year festival. But as you might imagine, it's also a a syncretic festival, which means it's a festival that combines two distinct traditions. And that other tradition is Catholicism. Uh, history suggests that this becoming also a Catholic event may have been an attempt by the church to co-op the indigenous traditions into the church. But I'm not going to go so far as to say that's a, a, a confirmed claim. According to the Catholic Church, the festival honors the Lord of Kiyurit'i. It became also a Catholic festival in the late 18th century. The story is a really bizarre one, but it's a strange story about a boy who helps another boy with his herd of animals. And then one of the boys is transformed into a bush with an image of Christ hanging from it. I'm not clear on why this supposedly happened. But then the other boy dies, presumably of grief, and ends up buried under a rock. And the pilgrimage to this area is now to that rock. More than 10,000 indigenous people coming from both pastoral and agricultural regions come to the festival. They're both Quechua and Aymara-speaking peoples. The, the Quechua that come are primarily agriculturists, and the Aymara-speaking people who attend are primarily pastoralists. For better or for worse, the festival has also become a tourist attraction that attracts urban Peruvians and foreign tourists. The timing of the festival is based on the full moon in late May or early June. This also turns out to be one week before the Catholic festival of Corpus Christi, which is a Catholic holiday and tradition that I knew nothing about until I visited Ecuador and hadn't realized what a, an important event it is as part of the Catholic culture in South America. For the non-Christians that go to the festival, the big event is the sighting of the Pleiades, or Koika, as it's called, on the third day of the festival. It must be a pretty amazing sight when this happens. Tens of thousands of people kneel for the sunrise on the third day. You can imagine the power that that probably has to be with tens of thousands of people all kneeling together, watching the sunrise together. So I can imagine why so many people like to participate in this event and even why so many tourists think it's something worthwhile to see. For a moment, I want to talk about Rainbow Mountain. Rainbow Mountain is also called Vinicunca, or in Spanish, Montaña de Siete Colores, which is Mountain of Seven Colors. And this is a mountain that 
goes up to 5,200 meters or 17,100 feet that's in this Ausangate region a few hours from Cusco. To get to the mountain by a vehicle or through a tourist um, outing, it's about a three-mile or five-kilometer walk to see it. And these days, hundreds of tourists come each day to see it. It's actually somewhat of a recent attraction because the mountain used to be covered in snow most of the time, but due to climate change has been revealed for better or for worse. The mountain has seven colors, which are the result of 14 different minerals. And if you look at pictures of the mountain, you'll see that they they do, the colors do come in stripes like in a rainbow. There's pink, which is made from red clay, mud, and sand. There's white, which is quartzose, sandstone, and marls, which is rich in calcium carbonate. There's red from iron. There's green from phyllites and clays that are rich in ferromagnesium. There's an earthy brown that's a funglomerate with magnesium. And there's a mustard yellow that's made of calcareous sandstone that is rich in sulfurous minerals. Recently, there have been attempts to establish mines in the area, but in 2019, the area was made a regional conservation area. So the protection of this area is something that's still developing, and strangely, it seems, or maybe not so strangely, that tourism has actually been an impetus to protect the region from mining. This area has some... Uh, impressive fauna. There's the vicuña, which is a wild relative of llamas and alpacas. And there's the massive Andean condor. And I'll give you a teaser on that one. In the conversation with Gary, he tells a great story about the Andean condor that was just a really surprising to me to hear. So look forward to that. And there's also the puma, which we, which is also in the part of the world where I live, known as a cougar or a mountain lion. The area itself, as I mentioned, as of 2019, achieved a, a protected status, and it's now called the Ausangate Conservation Area, or Área de Conservación Regional Ausangate. It's 164,000 acres, or about 66,000 hectares. And it includes, importantly, Kelkkaya which is the world's largest tropical glacier. Kelkaya is the source of three rivers and is a very important water and hydroelectric source for the region. As I've mentioned, there has been recent pressure from climate change and mining activity, but a protected status is expected to help the local communities through participating in nature-based tourism, which is what we're here on this episode talking about. All right, with that background and introduction, here's my conversation with Gary Black about his trip to hike the Ausangate and Rainbow Mountain Trek. Gary Black, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. I'm honored. You're a listener of the show, and it seems like you've been a listener for a while based on some of our correspondence in the past. When did you get into doing treks or hikes of long distance or doing the kind of trips that we're going to be talking about today? In 2019, a fellow that I know told me about his trip to Kilimanjaro. He told me about it and it sounded really brutal. It was cold. There was an issue with the altitude. He had stomach issues and it sounded kind of nightmarish actually. And I put it aside and then about six months later, we spoke about it again, and he said it was one of the, the greatest accomplishments of his life, basically. And it was a different perspective. And when the agency that he went to Kilimanjaro with put out their ad that they're doing this trip again, I signed up, and that was going to be in August 2019. So I'd ne- never done any real hiking or trekking before. So I read the book. There's a book on Kilimanjaro. I got into very good shape, you know, Stairmaster, treadmill, etc. I bought all the gear. I was very well prepared for the hike. And it was just like he said, it was an amazing accomplishment. And I was very proud of the fact that I was able to do it. 
Well, now, wait a minute. One of the things that you said at the beginning of talking about Kilimanjaro was how it almost sounded like it was an ordeal for your friend. So it's interesting to me that that intrigued you versus turning you off. Why do you think that is? Well, no, initially I was turned off. Okay. But then when I spoke to him again later on, and he told me that, yes, it was very, very difficult, but it was also a challenge and it was an accomplishment. It was doable if you were adequately prepared. All right. And so you did the Kilimanjaro trek and it went well. And then you told me, I think, that you actually, after hearing about the Kilo Toa loop on the show, that you went and did that as well, correct? Correct. I started listening to your show and I did a, I, I listened to podcasts. I did a search on, uh, you know, on hiking, et cetera. Your show came up. I listened to the one about Nepal and then uh, the Kilatoa one. And I'd been to Ecuador before. I was keen to go back because I hadn't visited a few places that I really wanted to see. Your show sounded intriguing because places that you stay in were very nice. So it turned out that I listened to your show. I Googled multi-day guided treks in Ecuador. I found an agency. They set up a guide. And you know the hotels that you spoke about, they did the luggage transfers. They also did my transportation from Quito and back to Guayaquil. It was an add-on to your trip that you did with your son, I believe. Yeah, I actually did it with my whole family. Right. But I interviewed my son for the show. Yes. All right. And that worked out pretty well, it sounds like. It was really amazing. It was, uh, it was just difficult enough to make it uh, challenging, but it wasn't overwhelming. The places that you had stayed in were very, very nice. The food was good. The weather was beautiful. And it was really a doable, beautiful kind of hike. Well, I'm glad that worked out for you. It did. And today we're going to talk about the Ausangate trek. How did you even learn about this trek and decide to do this one? Well, after the Ecuador trip, I wanted to go back to Peru and I did some searching. Again, multi day guided treks. And there are many options in Peru for multi-day guided treks. I had been to Machu Picchu before, so I wasn't really that keen on doing the, uh, the Inca Trail. There are some other hikes, but uh, I found the Asungate Trek, and that seemed like it was just perfect for me. It was the right number of days. It's supposedly very uncrowded. It's challenging enough. Everything sort of fit for what I wanted to do. So I know you had done Kilimanjaro, so altitude was something you had experienced before, but did that give you any concerns that this entire trek is pretty much at high altitude? Well, being that I had been to both Ecuador and Peru and Bolivia and Kilimanjaro, I had been at altitude. And the first times were very tricky, but then I wasn't worried about it because of the fact that I had been at altitude quite a few times before. So I knew that I wasn't going to get sick. And it was a matter of basically being able to acclimate correctly. And really, the, the thing about the Asungate trek is acclimation and dealing with a cold. And both of those things I could ameliorate. Okay. And so how did you go about planning the trek? Was it really as simple as getting in touch with the company that you felt comfortable with? Yeah, I mean, basically, I got on uh, TripAdvisor. I read the reviews. This company came up very, very highly rated. I contacted them. I had some concerns about the food and you know about the route, etc. And they were very responsive. It's amazingly well priced, and they had a very good reputation. So it was that simple, basically. It was just a matter of having faith in this company and you know having them plan it for me. What was the company you used? It's called AB Expeditions. Great. Okay. I don't know if you've been to. Cusco, but there are a lot of tour agencies there. I have not been there, um, but I've heard that, and I imagine there would be, uh, particularly for the Inca Trail, but even for this trail, I would expect there's probably a fair number of operators. Right. And I like these guys because they do have their own huts, at least they did on the first night. On their website, they say that they can take you on routes that are not as um, popular. It's going to be more of a remote hike because the situation in Peru is right now anyway, is that it's, you know, there's a lot of, lot of people. For me personally, I really like to go to a place where it's more remote and you can really enjoy 
sort of the nature and be in this situation where you're kind of alone. It's rare, but this was one of those places. I've said that before, I think, on this show, which is that often right next to a very popular trek, there'll be one that people haven't heard of as much that will be almost as beautiful or just as beautiful. And I really do recommend people take advantage of treks like Asongate, which are in a country that is known for, of course, Machu Picchu and the treks to Machu Picchu. Right. But take advantage of the other opportunities that are there. And like you said, you can get quite a bit of solitude if you do that. One question I had is whether people do this trek without guides or are most people doing what you did, which is to hire a guide? It's definitely possible to do this trek without a guide. In fact, I did run into a few people along the way that were backpacking, but it seems for the cost and the convenience, I would highly recommend doing it with a guide. We can talk about what services I got, but because it's a cold weather hike, you're going to have to take your winter gear, you're going to have to take your big sleeping bag and your tent. It's going to be cold. As an example, they had a restaurant tent, whatever you call it, a tent that you eat in, you know, with a, t- uh, with like a table. Like a dining in hall. Yeah, like a little dining hall. And they had a propane heater in there. If you're not going to get that if you're humping a 40-pound or whatever it is backpack around. You're not going to have the services that I had. For example, there were five horses. It's a different kind of situation. And as I said, for the cost, and we can talk about that, for me, it was so worthwhile. And I would say half the people... I didn't see that many people, but I would say half the people that I saw were on a trek like mine and half were, you know, doing this independently. Let's talk about the cost. What does it cost to do the trip the way you did it? And I guess the other question I have is, are you doing this where you are the only customer or are you part of a larger group? I was the only customer. It would have been $500 for five days per person if I had somebody else. It would mean $500 a piece, right? So it's $1,000 for this five-day trek. Because it was only me, I had to cover the cost myself. That includes four horses, a chef, a sous chef, a muleteer, and a guide. Wait, you get a chef and a sous chef? Yes. A chef (laughs) and an assistant chef, a muleteer, and a guide. Wow. Every meal, any of the, the meals that I had, none of them were repeats. They were all different. They were all presented really beautifully with like scrambled eggs with like a cut strawberry on top and the chef wears a like a chef shirt and this is not unusual because the other when I saw these other groups that had the same situation it was exactly the same setup you know they had a chef with a uniform it was really very very well done that seems like a really high value for what you're paying there that seems like an incredible deal it really is And that's why it's one of those opportunities to take advantage of. It is rare that you can go on a spectacular, uncrowded, beautiful hike like this and, you know, and it be very reasonably priced. Now, what about accommodations? You mentioned the first night they had huts. Was it otherwise you're setting up your own tent or are they bringing uh, tents for you and setting those up for you? How does that work? Right. So they bring all the gear in the uh, horses. So... And the first night, they have huts, and they put a mattress in the hut, and they give you a blanket and a pillow, and basically, you sleep in your sleeping bag, right? They have a toilet. Second night, we slept in a tent with like a thatched shelter over it. Is that in case of rain? Uh, no, I think it was for more for warmth, but yeah, I guess so. It would be a protection against the rain. Maybe wind protection as well. Yes. Third night was tents and toilets, you know, fixed toilets. And the fourth night was tents with, uh, they have a a toilet tent. Okay. So you mentioned that it gets pretty cold and this is a cold weather trek. How cold are we talking about? Well, during the day, it's beautiful. The sky is blue. It's warm enough to wear just one layer. Really beautiful weather during the day. However, around 5.15 or 5.30, I think it's because there's no humidity and the air is very dry. There's no clouds. This very, very cold chill descends and it's really bone-chillingly cold. I mean, you are at 15, 16,000 feet, 
but it's just very, very cold. Substantially below freezing. Yes. Well, I don't know how much substantially below, but it was below freezing and there was ice in the morning on the tents. It never snowed for me, but there is the potential that it might snow. It's very important to go during the right time of year. What is the right time of year for this? I would say between May and September. So I went in May. Okay. But it would be very difficult outside of the season. When I looked up this trip, it looks like Peru gets most of its precipitation in January and February. So you'd probably want to avoid that time of year for sure. Right. As well as the fact that you probably wouldn't want to be visiting the other sites like Machu Picchu either. Right, right. Okay. And how long of a hike was this on the five-day version? And before you answer that, let me ask, when I looked on the website of this company, there are lots of different lengths of trip that you can do. So maybe a little context around what the five-day trip is versus what you might choose to do instead of that and how long the trip was that you did. Right. So mine was a five-day trip. I believe it was about 40 miles and it's almost a loop. So we did not complete the loop completely. Let's say if you start, if you have a clock, we started at the, at the 11, went counterclockwise and ended at about the one o'clock. Okay. We had an extra day to do the Rainbow Mountain trip. That was an add-on. So the trip is really four days plus the one day to do the Rainbow Mountain, which to me is really worthwhile doing. So you did the five-day version. Do you recommend that version that you did with four days of Ausangate and one day of Rainbow Mountain? Is that a good exposure to this area where you feel like you've seen enough of it and it wasn't too long or too short? versus doing a two-day version or a six-day version or something like that. Right, right. I can only speak for myself and tell you that it was the perfect length for me. I wouldn't have wanted to not see the Rainbow Mountain because the way I saw it was we got there at 7 a.m. The huge numbers of tourist buses from Cusco start showing up a little later on in the morning and the whole atmosphere changes. So I got to see it with the sun, you know, the sun coming up and its beauty. It's a very, it was a rare opportunity to see the Rainbow Mountain in this scenario. Why don't you describe, since we're talking about it, what the Rainbow Mountain is and why it's such a special thing to see? So basically the Rainbow Mountain is a mountain with different colored rocks in a type of rainbow setup where you have uh, multi-colors going up the, the ridge of the mountain. And it's really is a it really is a beautiful sight. And you got to see it, like you said, before all the people got there and sort right. of have it to yourself for a short amount of time. Yeah, for about uh, an hour. And then we went down again. Great. That sounds awesome. So one question I had is, how did you acclimatize? Did you fly into Cusco and spend some time there? Or was there other parts, were there other days planned to sort of get used to the, the elevation? Let me just make a suggestion for a person that has not been at altitude before. What I would recommend is flying into Cusco, then going down to this place called the Sacred Valley, to a, a town called Olente Tambo, which is on the railway line between Cusco and Machu Picchu. This is how we did it before. The Sacred Valley is at a slightly lower elevation, but you still will have an opportunity to acclimate. You take the train to Machu Picchu, you come back to Olente Tambo. There's there's uh, there's a lot to see. It's very authentic. It's beautiful. You can get to uh, eat koi. I've done that in Ecuador. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Never did that. But, uh, and then after spending a, a few days in Olente Tambo to go to Cusco, which is at 11,000 feet, Machu Picchu is lower than Cusco. Now, being that I have done this before, what I did is I flew into Cusco on Thursday I spent Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night in Cusco. Sunday morning, I got picked up. We drove to the trailhead. We met the muleteer, and we started the hike. Saturday night, I went to the, the agency to, to meet the guide to get last-minute information and to pay off the balance of the trip. Okay. And you said, did you bring your own sleeping bag, or did they provide one? I brought my own. I brought all my own gear, my gloves, my parka, boots, poles, 
my day pack. Uh, I also carried, a, I had a duffel bag, which I put my stuff in. There is a lot of uh, opportunities to rent gear in Cusco. So, okay. you know, I didn't want to risk renting gear and, not, and finding out that it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't the best quality gear. So I, and I did the same thing in, in Kilimanjaro. I figured under those circumstances, it's worth making the investment in the, in the correct gear. And so the sleeping bag you have, what's the temperature rating? Well, it's, a, it's supposedly a zero. And so that should be plenty comfortable. Except that I'm not sure, and you're more of an expert at this, but I think zero means that you won't die of exposure at zero degrees. <laughs> it doesn't mean yeah. that you're going to be toasty warm. You know, I still, had, I still had to wear my wool under, underwear, my socks, my sleeping bag liner, and the blanket. Oh, wow. So yeah, it definitely gets cold at night. Yeah. All right. And then you said, you mentioned just a moment ago that you carried a day pack. Is that all you need to do? If you're hiring a guide company, you really can just carry a day pack and they carry all your heavier gear? Absolutely. All I did was carry water, my extra layer and snacks, my poles, and that was it. Did they provide you a map from the company or did you buy a map in advance of the area? Or basically, did you just follow them and not worry about navigation? I didn't bring a map. On Saturday night, when I went to the agency, they did show me the map, and uh, we did talk about the route. Okay. Getting to the trailhead, did they take you in a shuttle from Cusco to where you need to be to start the hike? Yeah, they have a, a mini, uh, like a van, a minivan type thing, and they drove me and the guide and the chef and the sous chef with the gear in the back. We stopped a couple times, once for breakfast, once to pick up some supplies. Then we met the uh, the muleteer uh, at the trailhead. Okay. And how long of a trip roughly is that from Cusco to where you start Ausangate? It's about three hours. Okay. Let me just say, I decided to pay for an extra horse. And this was going to be an insurance policy because there is no cell phone service. If something goes wrong, it's basically kind of difficult to get off the mountain. Right, so I had purchased an extra horse for twenty-five dollars a day. That was your ambulance. That was well, <laughs> as well as the fact that, and we can talk about it later. But uh, I did actually land up using the horse, and I'll and I can explain later on why I did that. Okay, that's a great teaser. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so for someone who's not been to this area, we've talked a little bit about Rainbow Mountain, but what does the Asangate Nevado, the Asangate Range, look like? It is spectacular. You've got the Andes, the snow-peaked Andes Mountains. You've got the glacial lakes. You've got the alpacas, the llamas. You have these indigenous people who live there in stone huts who um, the alpacas belong to. And they really, they look like and dress like and seem like they're, you know, they've been doing this for hundreds of euros, thousands of euros. They speak Quechua and not uh, Spanish. It's a very authentic, beautiful experience. It's very remote. You're not going to see anybody else on the trail almost. It's really an amazing experience. And how difficult is the trail itself? I mean, there's some pretty high passes on this trail. Right. I have found that the distances aren't that great. The first day is four miles. Each day is, is eight miles. You start your day at like 7 a.m. You get to the, the camp at 3 or 4 p.m. You have plenty of time to go at your own pace. The trail itself is, is not difficult. There's no, there's no rock scrambles. You have these very long ups and you have these very long downs. It's not like there's multiple ups and downs. It's... Not a difficult trail per se. You are in an area with maybe 50% less oxygen. So your breathing is going to be labored. But if you pace yourself, it's not that difficult to do. It seems like the real difficulty here is just getting used to the altitude. And you've, you've talked about ways to do that. So right. it sounds like once you're in a good position with respect to the altitude, and if you take it slow, you'll be fine. Right. 
Absolutely. All right. Let's talk about the trail itself and how this unfolded for you. So you get there and day one, what does that look like? So we met the muleteer, packed up the gear. We had lunch or uh, brunch, I guess. And then we hiked the four miles to the first camp, which is the camp with huts. We got there around about, say, three three o'clock. It was, uh, you know, pretty easy first day, good acclimation walk. You walk along a dirt road for a while, and then you turn off onto the trail. When we got to the camp, we also took a, a two-hour side hike, I guess, to another beautiful lake. I believe there might be thermal pools there, but I didn't see that. We just we went on this uh, the side hike, came back to the camp, we had dinner, and that was it for the first day. Pretty easy first day. I don't know if you know the names, but is that Upis Warmisaya? Right. So basically, you you start the hike at Upis. Well, the first day, the first camp is at Upis, and that's at uh, fourteen thousand four hundred feet or forty four hundred meters. So you're on day one of the hike, and you are already at the elevation of the highest peak in the lower 48 states. <laughs> you are sleeping at the top of Mount Whitney, essentially. Mount Whitney is 14,500, um, just for some context. But you, having been in Cusco and having gone up and down a couple of times, like you described earlier, um, were you fine sleeping at 14,500? Right. I had no problems. But I can tell you that the altitude is real. Like you said, it's really, really high up. Okay. But uh, I was eating and sleeping just fine. Great. Okay. And then day two. So day two, we went over two passes. The passes are Pakuchoka Pass, and that's at almost 5,000 meters or 14,700 feet. You also go over another pass to your first campsite called Ananta. And that's at 15,420 feet or 4,700 meters. The first day is to get to Upas. The second day, you go over two passes. Again, it's not lots of up and down. It's an up, then a down, then an up, and then a down. And this is the night where you have a sort of open-ended sort of shelter that covers up your tent? Yeah, this is where we had a thatched straw shelter. The next day is when we did the Rainbow Mountain side trip. And that was on day three. Right. The, the Rainbow Mountain side trip was on day three. Okay. So my guide and I spoke at length about this Rainbow Mountain side trip. And he told me that because of these crowds, it would be better for us to get there at, let's say, 7 a.m. And it's about a three-hour hike from Ananta. It's a, it is a very much harder hike. So we decided that I would use the horse, being that it, I felt like it was outside of the loop, outside of the Asungate trek, I kind of sort of justified. So we landed up, instead of having to leave, get up at, say, 2 a.m., we landed up leaving at 4 a.m. I took the horse up to the peak, got off the horse, went up and down Rainbow Mountain, spent an hour or so in Rainbow Mountain. And then went back to Ananta with a Patsur, where we had lunch, and continued on with the the rest of the day. That's great. You got some value for your horse. (laughs) And I think, actually, I had met some other hikers who had done the same thing. They were staying in Ananta, and they hiked to Rainbow Mountain, and they said that it nearly broke them. It was really, really hard. It's a very hard part. Good decision there then, to use the horse. Yes. All right. And then night three, where are you staying? We had lunch at Ananta. We then stayed at Laguna Asungate. This was tents, but they had fixed toilets. So it was uh, sort of an official campground. And the next day was where you actually hike to the highest point of the trek, which is the Palomani Pass. And that's at 5,200 meters, which is about 17,000 feet. So you get up in the morning, have breakfast, you start the hike. It's just basically straight up. It's not all that steep. You know, you're going from maybe 1,000 feet and you get to the top, you're at the peak. Uh, You look back and you can see 
the campground behind you. And it really is beautiful. Again, even though this was the the highest peak, it wasn't that difficult to do in truth. And it sounds like the elevation was okay for you. At this point, you've been out there several days. You're feeling pretty good about that part of it. But I have my hiking legs. Look, there are parts where I'm breathing very hard. Sure. If you're not pacing yourself, you you definitely will be running out of breath. All right. And where did you stay that evening? Okay. So then we started our downhill and we went to a place called Surampapa, which is at about the three o'clock on the clock where we were supposed to camp and have lunch. My guide offered me the option to keep hiking and the next day, which would be the final day, would be a slightly shorter day. I didn't really want to camp there because it was still like two o'clock in the afternoon. We started the, the, the hike and we went to another pass called uh, Kwampa, another very high pass. And we spent the night, this is the, the last night, and this is the coldest night actually, in a place called Nina Parayok. And this is at about the, the 12 o'clock. So very close to the end of the trip, actually. It didn't leave much for the last day. It was about three or four hours oh, okay. of hiking. All right. And no problems there, and you finish up on the last day uneventful. Well, the last day, we got up, at about, we got up a little bit later, maybe at about 6.30, had breakfast, and we started the hike. You actually hike past an area called the, the Seven Lakes. It's really beautiful, and there are seven lakes. And we were able to really, you know, take pictures and enjoy it. What was interesting about this last day is that we walked past a corral with alpacas and some llamas and some sheep. The lady who, whose alpacas these were came out and we actually spent a very nice, maybe 30 minutes talking about her life with my guide who spoke Spanish, English and Quechua being able to translate. I was able to ask questions, for example, why does they paint on their backs because they've been vaccinated? Why do they have different ear ribbons? Each of the ribbons are for different children. The alpacas belong to different kids. You know, whereas her husband, her husband's, he's a farmer and he's, uh, you know, in the valley. Basically, it was a very interesting day. And my guide told me a very interesting story about how he has seen this a number of times, how condors can kill a cow. Wow. The male condor, which is, has a, a wingspan of maybe eight feet, flies, swoops down, and starts flapping its wings above a calf and basically slapping the calf with its wings. The calf will, will start running, tire itself out, the condor comes does it again and again until the calf just basically lays down. The females come down, they swoop down, peck out the eyes of the calf and start eating the calf alive. And he, he says that he's seen this on a number of occasions. So that is an amazing story to me for a number of reasons. But one of them is that you think of a condor, of course, as a vulture, a type of vulture, an animal that's supposed to eat carrion, is supposed to eat weak or wounded or dead animals. And it seems like in this area, the condors have adapted a way to hunt in a way and to create their own weakness in the animal, which is something I've never heard of. I agree. It's, it seemed very strange and very, uh, nature can be very cruel. Yes, yes. Well, they need condors need to eat too, I guess. Right. When you finish this trip and you look back on it, why is this a trip that other people should think about doing? Why is this a trail worth hiking? It really is a beautiful, beautiful place. It's very pristine. It's very unspoilt. It's very remote. There's very few other people there. And it's very accessible. If you can take care of the altitude and the cold weather, it's actually a doable hike. It doesn't require permits. It has what you need to do to be able to actually do this hike or this trek. Is there a particular moment for you that stands out in your five days there that you will carry with you for a long time? Well, I think at the, at the peak in 
Palomani, when you look back, you can actually see where you've gone and you see your campground way, way, way in the distance. And Asungate Lake right there. It really is spectacular. And did things work out kind of the way you expected with this trekking company? Or was there anything you would have done differently or, or something you might change about the way you did this trip? Well, being that I don't trek or don't backpack or camp that often, I kind of make rookie mistakes. And these are only things that you figure out after the fact. For example, having a pee bottle, having to get out of your tent, because you have to drink a lot to fix the, uh, you know, to take care of the altitude. So you're drinking liters of water every day. And that definitely comes to play at 2 a.m. when you're getting out of your warm sleeping bag and getting out of your tent. There was that. I also didn't bring lip balm. So weeks after this, my lips were still very chapped, bleeding, etc. But I would not have done anything different with the trekking company. The trekking company took care of everything that I needed. So I wouldn't do anything different there. It's just I would have been more prepared for the cold. I would have the first few nights I didn't wear my long underwear. Right off the bat, I would have been prepared at night for the cold. Yeah, that's great advice, particularly about the pee bottle <laughs> in cold weather. That is great to have so that you don't have to go far. Right. Uh, um, as long as you label it well so that you don't confuse it with your water bottle. Right. Anything else we haven't talked about about the trek that you want to mention? The people that you meet and you ask about their experience on the trek, I found that people did not acclimate properly. People that I met got very sick. There was another group that I told you about with the Rainbow Mountain that they had attempted this on their own. Another fellow was a, a super light hiker like yourself. I'm not sure that that was a good idea because if you don't carry the stuff with you, I don't know how you survive these cold nights. You know, and we've said it several times about acclimatizing, but I really think what the way you just put it is important and should help it to sink in because people really do need to take the elevation seriously. The altitude is a real thing. And it sounds like you did it right and you didn't have any problems. But to point out that other people you saw there were having problems with the elevation, right. that's important because a lot of people think they can show up in Cusco, spend a night there, and then right. go on the hike. You really need to spend more time. And, and even if the hike is five days, I'm thinking this is a two-week trip to Peru to really do it right, or at least 10 days or something like that. You, sh you shouldn't plan for a one-week trip to Peru to make this happen. I agree. I think that uh, altitude sickness, even if you've been to other places in Colorado, for example, it doesn't qualify you to, uh, to do a hike like this. Well, Gary, thank you for telling us about your hike on the Ausangate and Rainbow Mountain Trek. But while I have you, I've got a few more questions for you. What is one piece of gear you don't leave home without? For sure, without a doubt, hiking poles. However, I have to say that a neck gaiter or buff, having your neck warm seems to keep the rest of your body warm as well. At least it seems to keep your temperature moderated. Okay. In addition to a hat, of course, you need to have a warm hat, right? No. For, for, I mean, in, in a hike like this, you're very, you're very much closer to the sun and you will get burnt. I used a lot of lotion, a lot of suntan lotion, mm -hmm. not lip balm, but... Uh, but sunblock. Which was a sunblock, exactly. Definitely yeah. a hat and gloves. I wore liner okay. gloves because my, you know, your hands will burn. You will burn at that altitude. Yeah, the neck gaiter is a great idea, especially in a, an area where you know it's going to be cold the entire time you're there. Right. All right. And what is the next trip on your list? So my bucket list trip is the Dolomites. Okay. But my next trip is uh, to go to Glacier. Uh, in a few weeks to do some day hiking. In Glacier National Park. Glacier National Park. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. When you mentioned the Dolomites, do you have a particular trail in mind there, or are you just thinking anything in the Dolomites would be great to see? It's probably going to be day hiking. I've looked at uh, guided treks, and it's, uh, it's probably going to be renting a car and doing day hikes. 
I would love to do a guided trek, but uh, in my research, it's not as simple. I definitely would love to go to the Dolomites as well. It's uh, on my short list. This is last question. What is the best hiking or trekking advice you've gotten? So this is a little cliched, but to hike your own hike. And what that means to me is to go at your own pace, to control your breathing, to control your heart rate. It's not easy to do in a group, but uh, for example, in the Asungate, it is very important to do that. The other thing is, I don't want to do something that I'm uncomfortable doing. And I think you mentioned that when you went to, um, to Yellowstone. No, to Yosemite. Mm-hmm. Right. You went, I did, I had that experience at, for example, at the Angel, Angel's Landing in Zion. Oh, yes. You get yes. to the chains mm-hmm. and there were a lot of people coming up and down. And I decided I wasn't going to do that. And I mentioned it re- with respect to Half Dome with my wife who decided not to go up. Right. And I think that's yes. part of hiking your own hike. Yeah, I think that's that is it is cliche, but it's also because like a lot of cliches, it makes a lot of sense. It's true. And in hiking, I think it's important for your own safety in in a lot of cases to really do that. You mentioned that it's harder to do in a group, and I think that can be true. But if you have a good group leader, they'll try to accommodate the slowest hiker in the group to make sure that it works. Or like on a trip like you did recently in like the Asungate trip where each day isn't so long as to create a discomfort situation or stretching your limits too far kind of situation. Right. And I think one thing that makes it a little easier for you is you've done some of these trips where you're the only person doing the hike. And that, of course, allows you to do it at whatever pace you think makes sense. Right. All right, Gary Black, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Well, I'm honored to have been on the show. I hope that this is uh, helpful for your listeners. And I uh, really appreciate the fact that you put on the show. It's an amazing resource. I appreciate that. But let me ask you, Jeremy. Yeah. Like, why are you doing this? It's, a, it's such, a, <laughs> such a lot of work. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm just, I'm amazed that you, you do the work that's required and you don't really have an ax to grind. It doesn't sound like you, like there's any, you're just doing this because you love it. You know, that's yeah. what it seems yeah. to me. Is that, is that, am I reading that correctly? Yes, you are. Um, I got it's a good question. I think I started it during COVID lockdown because I was thinking of something to do with my time after work that might be interesting. One of the reasons I started the show is I heard another podcast. It was sort of a history podcast. And then I had been listening to hiking podcasts. And what I thought that was missing in hiking podcasts was the context of the location. People weren't talking about the history. They weren't talking about geography, the geology. And I thought, look, I'm not a super technical person where I just want to know, you know where the hike is and how many miles. I'm a traveler more than a hiker at heart. Right. And for me, I really want to go to a place and experience that place. And I thought giving people context around these hikes, the segment that I do at the beginning before the interview right. is something that was important to me and I thought was, a, was not being done on other hiking podcasts. And so for me, that was the prime motivator was to bring that to people. But what I found is when I started doing the research and putting together those segments, I really loved it. I really loved learning all this stuff because I plan travel all the time, probably like you do. You sound like you're a traveler, like I am. And so I enjoy that whole process of trip planning. I, you know, When I go backpacking with friends, I'm usually the one that plans the trip, figures out where we're going to be each night, looks into all of the permitting, does all the background legwork. And so I thought you know, why not bring that to a broader audience and start a conversation where I get feedback from people like you, you know, we met through you con- contacting me after you listened to an episode. And so for me, that that's the payoff. The payoff is that I get to learn about these places. Some of them I've actually gone and hiked since I've learned about them or put them on my list at a minimum. And I've met lots of people who have reached out to me. And so for me, it's just been a fun endeavor. And I get a lot out of it by being able to engage in that process. Well, it works for me. So I hope Gary and I have inspired you to hike the Ausangate and Rainbow Mountain trek. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it. Or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, 
pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Let's talk about our next regular episode. I am working on a couple of bonus episodes, so I hope I can get one or two of those ready in the next several months. But let's talk about our next regular episode and the next trail we'll cover. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we visit the British Isles for the second time on this show. Our first time there, we traveled along Hadrian's Wall at the northern frontier of the Roman Empire. And if you want to hear about that, you can listen to episode 11. Hadrian's Wall was a wall built to keep the Roman legions safe from those wild tribes of the north. Well, next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we cross that frontier and go deep into northern Great Britain to hike first in lowland farmland, then along the biggest lake in Great Britain. And finally, yes, you guessed it, get your kilt and your bagpipes ready, because we will be traveling through the peat bog moors and wild Monroes of the Scottish Highlands. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the West Highland Way in Scotland. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode, or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.